Paragraph 4. As repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. Notice particularly, that is an adverb describing the repentance. The repentance is to be particular repentance. Then paragraph, then we have two references there. Luke 19 and 1 Timothy, which we'll see are examples of that kind of repentance. And then paragraph 5 says, Such is the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Now, we'll read this story from Luke 19, verses 1 to 10, a story of a man who repented of his particular known sins particularly. Beginning at verse 1, He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down, or hurried and came down, and received him joyfully. And when he saw it, when they saw it, this will be the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Again, we ask that You would add Your blessing to the reading of it from Deuteronomy and here from Luke and the passages that we look at later on. Lord, I pray that You would take Your Word and write it upon our hearts as always. We, we need Your Spirit to help us. We have a great opportunity, Lord, this evening to learn great things about You, a great God who's bestowed upon us such a great salvation. We also have the opportunity to, to waste everything, all of our time here, because we didn't devote ourselves to listening, to paying attention, to girding up the lords of our mind. Lord, You have taught us that we have to be careful how we hear, that we, it is our responsibility to let these things sink into our ears and into our minds so that we might learn them and keep them, treasure them. So we pray that that would be the case, that we would keep them and not lose them, that it would be planted in the heart and not stolen by the evil one. And uh, we will rejoice and be glad for what we, we see You do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So just to briefly recap, last Lord's Day we looked at paragraph 3 which covers what I call the nuts and bolts of repentance and we divided it up using Philippians 2, 12 and 13. In any work of true repentance or saving repentance, there is first a work of God in you. God works something in the soul of a person. And then there is your own working out of what God has worked in. There is no way for God to work something in you that does not come out. At the same time, you can't work outwardly something that God has not first wrought in us. And uh, He works it in the inner man first. And this begins to lead to actions in our lives, as that text says, to will and to do or to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Now these last two paragraphs, and I'll, I'll just add, by the way, and the men know this, in the God's Gospel of Grace, we, we talked for months on repentance. We read a lot on repentance. And so if you're interested in that, the outworking of real repentance, um, some very detailed opening up of that, uh, get that book, God's Gospel of Grace. I've got some back here. But um, far more detail than could be covered in, in just one lecture. Uh, these last two paragraphs open up some things that have already been briefly addressed. Uh, 15.4, I've entitled Continuing Repentance. Now notice the, how this paragraph is structured. It begins with the word as, and then later on after a comma at the end, you have the word so. What follows the so is the point that's trying to be made here. The reason for the point follows the as. So we have sort of a, a, a fundamental truth that leads to a point. So it says, as repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives. We stop there. Block out the word as, and we have a truth that we believe as a congregation and as a church. We confess repentance is to be continued throughout the whole course of our lives. Back in paragraph 2, it said, The best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. Now when we see that phrase, the best of men... We could assume that we're talking about people who are at least matured, growing saints. And we see that there is a possibility of them falling into great sins, it says, because of the prevalency of temptation. In this world, temptations don't disappear. They're not going to go away. They're always going to be there. And so it's always a possibility in this life that we might fall into one of those temptations. And so that leads to the reality that repentance is to be continued throughout the whole course of our lives. The whole course meaning all times and always in all areas of our thinking, our living, our acting, our speaking. Everything about us throughout our lives is to be characterized by repentance. And that is, again, true repentance. Last week we talked about, or I mentioned, that there are many substitutes that we create. That we make and call them repentance, and they're not real repentance. This is talking about actual repentance. Our lives are to be characterized by real, actual repentance. Now again, that, is, that implies a work of God in us and our working out. So throughout our lives as a Christian, we have to operate under the assumption that God's going to be working in us. That God's going to be doing the things that we read at the beginning of that paragraph. The Holy Spirit is going to be making us sensible of the manifold evils of our sins, etc. Working these things out in us. And at the other end... We're always going to be on this trajectory of being sensible of our sins, humbling ourselves, hating our sins, abhorring ourselves, 
seeking God for pardon and strength, endeavoring after new obedience. This is the Christian life. Ongoing, continual repentance. Ways of, again, thinking, speaking, acting. We're always changing. Not that, we, that there's no way to ever discover what is actually right, and so we're, we're always searching for some new standard, but that we recognize more and more how deep sin is implanted in us, and so we're constantly changing and altering and repenting. God is always working in, and we are always working out. Now, in this paragraph, it doesn't say because of the prevalency of temptation, which would be something outside of us, This says, upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof. That's not something outside of us. That's something in us. In Romans 7, 24, Paul uses this phrase of the body of death. This is the Apostle Paul, regenerate, converted Apostle Paul. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He recognized, and this is a way of him talking about the corruption of his nature. He recognized it's still in me, and I long to be... Uh, rid of it, if we go back to chapter 6, and we've done this several times, chapter 6, paragraph 5 says, the corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. Chapter 9, paragraph 4, by reason of his remaining corruptions, the sinner doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. If you sin... That's because you willed to do that sin. It's you. There's corruption remaining. Paragraph 5 of chapter 9, this will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to do good alone in the state of glory only. So throughout this life, we have corruption in us. If you're regenerate, you have been set free. You have the ability to will to do good, but there's also the possibility that you can will to do evil And that's not going to change until we are in the state of glory. The reason this must be confessed as a reality is because of our understanding of the work of regeneration and sanctification. Like I said this morning, we are new creation. If you're a Christian, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. We have the principle of grace implanted in the soul. And at the same time, we have that body of death or the old man or the old corruption remaining in us. Sanctification, remember, is not the reworking of the old man, the body of death, the corruption. It is the strengthening and the growing of the new creation within us. That body of death is going to continue to be there, but God has not come along to to fix all of that. He started a new creation within you, and that is what's being increased in sanctification. And until we are glorified, that corruption remains. Some people might say, well, don't you mean after we die? Well, even after you die, your body still goes in the ground. There's still corruption in the members of your flesh. As a dead person, there might be spirits of the righteous made perfect, but until Christ comes in His glory, there's going to be that corruption. When He comes in His glory, our physical bodies will join our spirits and be glorified. So as long as that corruption remains in this life, There's always going to be a potential to will that which is evil. So we have the body of death in us and the motions thereof, that is the movements of this corruption, whether they are small, whether they are big, the various motions of this corruption will lead us to sins. This prevailing temptation, um, what prevails for you might not prevail for me, 
The, my emotions might not be your emotions, and your emotions might, be, might not be my emotions, but we all have motions of the body of death in us, and therefore repentance has to be continued. That's the underlying truth. And so in light of that truth, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. Specific sins repented of specifically. And these sins have to be known in order to do this. The whole process of that third paragraph must be carried out with respect to every known sin or we can't say that we've repented of that sin. Now we can confess, bring before God the reality that we know there are sins that we're not even aware of. We can bring that to God in confession, but we can't say, I repented of sins that I don't even know about. Because, why? A part of the work of true repentance is that the Spirit has made you sensible of the manifold evils of a particular sin. And so, again, this happens throughout the course of our lives. We are specifically repenting of specific sins. And then the, paragraph, or the, the confession gives us these two references. The first from what we just read. Luke 19, 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now notice that phrase, anyone of anything. Any individual person of anything that I might have defrauded from that person, I will restore that thing to that person fourfold. He's going to endeavor after new obedience. Obedience in specific matters. We could assume that Zacchaeus from this point on is hunting down people. He was a, a, a tax collector. He had records. He knew who he had collected from. He knew what he had taken. I would imagine that he is set on a course now to find these people, tell them, I, I defrauded you this much, and now I'm paying you back fourfold. I'm restoring. That's the repentance, and that's how the Lord could say, Behold, Salvation, today salvation has come to this house. It, it doesn't say that Zacchaeus asked Jesus to come into his heart or that it, it, the fruit of repentance evidences salvation has come, not just a profession. So there's that one. The second one's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now it's interesting at the end of this section with Zacchaeus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Paul says he came into the world to save sinners. Notice the specifics that he listed. He didn't just say at the end, yeah, I was, I was a sinner and Christ came to save sinners. No, he says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent of the church. I was ignorant. I was unbelieving. And so I acted in the ignorance of my unbelief. He knew all of that specific areas that Christ had showed him. This is who you were. True repentance is characterized by particular repentance of particular sins particularly. So, examine your repentance. Are you in the habit of repenting of 
particular known sins particularly? Is this a habitual practice for you? Or to put it more specifically, if I came to you privately, would you be able to name some specific sins that the Lord is dealing with in you right now? Or recently? Can you go in your mind, and, and as a Christian, we ought to, we, we have these things, our sin is ever before us, our transgressions are before us, we know our sins. So this is something that we ought to be able to do. This is a sin. I, I, I might say, I can't say that I have walked through full repentance. I do know that the Spirit has made me sensible. And that I, that I am working to humble myself beneath the hand of God for that sin. So on and so forth. Working through this process. A lot of people can name sins from the past that they turned from at one point. Or great changes that they made back in the past. I did this back then. But true repentance is ongoing. There will be specific dealing with specific sins on a regular basis. So if, if that's not your, your habit, do that this week. Pick a sin and begin to walk through the process of this third paragraph. Identify it in your mind. I, I would say in your, in your Scripture reading tonight or in the morning... Ask the Lord, what is something I see of God and of Christ? How, does this, how is this contrary to me? Uh, pray that the Spirit would make you sensible of a sin. And make the effort to try to work through this process. Now here's what's going to happen. The reason I'm telling you to do that is because take note of how quickly you immediately begin to reason in yourself that the process is really not worth it at this point. Deep down you're going to think, yeah, that's a sin... I'm not so sure that it's worthy of working through all of this to produce true repentance. You're going to see how contrary your flesh is to real repentance. And then ask yourself, if this is how I feel, have I ever done this? Have I ever truly repented of anything? This is, this is a serious thing. You might realize everything I've ever done that I thought was repentance, I've actually never done it. It's never happened to me. Hopefully you'll find out that it's something you've done. Maybe you didn't walk through the paragraph in the confession, but you realize this is something you're in a habit of doing. The Lord bringing sins to your mind and you're working through them. Repentance is a Christian duty. It is a normal habit of our lives. We are always going to be repenting. So then, the next paragraph, paragraph 5. This section deals with a point that I made last week, which is the preaching of repentance. In our day, we've sort of departed from a biblical view of the means of grace for the most part. How they work, why God has chosen to use them. And so when we begin to talk about repentance, usually we think of it exclusively as it is um, manifested in our hearts as an individual on a personal basis rather than being seen through the lens of the public means of grace. What was once, what is biblically known as the office of the elders in our day is just the preacher. There's a difference there. And preaching itself, even in orthodox settings, has become not much more than a delivery of truisms gleaned from the Scriptures. And so a majority of sermons just sort of follow in the line of uh, philosophical 
pontificating and, and philosophy rather than in the stream of the prophets. There's, there's a difference. Men think my job is to come and deliver some things I've found rather than come and talk to the people who I have been thinking of and for and, and bearing before the Lord and in the Scriptures this week. And so the sermon for a lot of people is received as just that, the theological and exegetical pontificating of a man who's been hired to do that in front of people. So as he does his work, as the man preaches the sermon, the listener is perfectly at liberty to agree or disagree. And that's how they listen. I'm here to decide if I want to agree or disagree. As the, the sermon sets forth truth, I can take it or I can leave it. I'm going to decide whether what he's saying is true for me or not. And as he speaks, I can almost always assume he's not talking to me or about me. He's just given vague truth. The truth of the matter, however, is that God Himself has instituted the office of elders and overseers to give every local church men like themselves who care for their souls, who've been before God, who have come to deliver the Word of God to the people of God in such a way that nobody leaves the room wondering if or how this message is applied to them. Nobody should leave thinking, I wonder if He was talking to us. In other words, and, and, and this is one of the primary means of grace and how repentance is brought or how people are brought to repentance through this means of grace. We have to think of this not in terms of what we know now with all of the outlets of sermon consumption, but in terms of the Scriptures and the authors of our confession. So when we think of the means of grace, remember that the authors of the Scriptures and the, uh, the men who put together our confession, they didn't have sermon audio. They didn't have, most of them didn't have written sermons. Uh, they didn't have um, podcasts and downloads. What they knew of the public means of grace is what they got in a, in a local church week to week to week. And so when they bring this idea of preaching repentance, they are assuming the people of God are sitting in a congregation. God has set men in that congregation as a means of grace to uh, bring repentance to that people. So the, the, the point here is that primarily through the week in and week out preaching of the Word of God the congregation or to a congregation by those set apart for that task, the graces necessary for true repentance are brought to that church by the Holy Spirit. In other words, this, this exalts preaching. This makes preaching a big deal. Not the preacher, preaching, the act of preaching. God uses the act of preaching, and that's what this paragraph is going to show us. First, there is the provision of preservation. Such is the provision which God hath made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation. Now again, if we took out some of the, the language that fitted in this paragraph, we have an assertion. We believe that God has made a provision through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation. Now, most people who call themselves Baptists hold to some view of this. Some idea of an unchangeable state of salvation. They might call it once saved, always saved. They might call it eternal security. Um, they might call it the perseverance of the saints. The idea is that they believe that once a person finds themselves in a state of salvation, they can't lose that. 
Most of them, however, have no broadly, broader theological reason to believe that. They just like to believe it. For us, we typically use the phrase perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. And when you use that phrase, what people hear is, oh, you believe that it's your job to keep yourself saved until the end, which is, in fact, not what we believe. Notice the language of our confession. Our confession, a public document that explains what we believe. Notice, such is the provision God hath made through Christ. So God has made a provision. He has provided. He has supplied something through the work of His Son. In the covenant of grace, sometimes called the new covenant, sealed in the blood of Christ, the Son of God, a covenant enacted by God into which we have been brought into. This covenant guarantees a particular provision from God for the preservation of believers, the keeping, the, the protecting, the safeguarding of believers. So we believe that our perseverance in the faith unto the end, and we could, if we want to take that out and substitute our persevering repentance unto the end, we believe that this is a result of something God Himself has provided and guaranteed to us in the covenant of grace, sealed in the blood of His Son. The idea of the perseverance of the saints is the farthest thing from self-keeping as you can get. It's the farthest thing from self-salvation as you can get when you understand the doctrine. Yes, we persevere because God has made a, a, a provision of preservation. Now this provision has a little caveat that helps us to see its value. Here's, here's how it works. Although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. In other words, put very simply, we all deserve hell for just one sin. Even sins that we might think are very small sins, in, in the sight of God, they deserve eternal damnation. There is no, no sin so small that we could say, now that kind of sin doesn't really deserve eternal damnation. Maybe 10,000 years, but not eternal. That's not the case. The confession references Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What, anytime we're trying to vindicate this, we always go back to Eden. You know, Adam ate a fruit. To us, it seems like that wouldn't be that big of a deal, but that plunges all of the human race into misery and separates us from God. Now, a point of application here. Do you see your sins that way? Little sins, little, little uh, retorts or remarks, responses that you make to your spouse or, or little quick ways that you might address your children that are not uh, respectful to them, that do not display to them godliness. Little things. Do you realize that thing would plunge you into hell if not for Christ? We have to see our sin the way God sees it. So there is that, that desert. We, we do deserve damnation, but there's also a limitation on that. There is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them that repent. No sin so big that, can't, that it can't be repented of. The greatest sins will not result in damnation if there is true repentance. Because repentance is first worked by God in us. It is a work of His Spirit and His saving grace. Now, this 
leads us to this provision that God has made. The means of preservation, we might say. Which makes all, all of that put together, the provision God has made, the idea that all sin, no matter, uh, no matter how small, deserves damnation, but none so great that if, if repentance comes, it will not result in damnation. All of this put together makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Now listen to what the confession is saying. God Himself, in the covenant of grace, sealed in the blood of His Son, has secured for us certain means that are going to be used by the Holy Spirit to keep us in the way of salvation. Then this is the problem with, with some views that are simply stated, once saved, always saved, or eternal security. The idea is that it's like a button God pushed. He pushes the button and you're, you're, you've, you've locked in that rate. That's not how it works. God, yes, He keeps us, but He keeps it through means. He's given us things that keep us in the way. And one of those, the only one that's mentioned in this chapter, that keeps us in the way of repentance is preaching. The preaching of the Word is something that God uses to aid you in your ongoing repentance which is a means God uses to keep you in a way of saving grace, to keep you near Him, to keep you coming to Him, to keep you coming to Christ by faith and humbling yourself for sins. It always keeps us coming back to God. Now, how does this work? Well, when the preacher opens up specific sins, his job is not complete by simply saying, now you ought not do that. He has to go further. It's his job to use the Scriptures to show, to use the language of the confession, the manifold evils of this sin. So when a sin is brought forth, it's the job of the preacher to go to the Scriptures and show you that this is morally reprehensible in the sight of God. God hates this. The preacher has to show you you're liable to the judgment of God for this sin. This sin, if you continue in this sin, it is offensive to God's holiness that every time you commit this sin, you are defying the person of God. You're, you're living contrary to Christ. You're abusing His work. You're contradicting everything in Him that is holy. You're hurtful to others. The consequences of your sin are rippling out into your family, into your children, to the people that you're around. You're destroying yourself. You're destroying your soul. The preacher has to bring that out. And we do this in such a way that the Spirit is pleased to take the preacher and his, his act of preaching and use it to impress the rational faculties of your own soul with the severity of your sin. But he's not done. Then the preacher has to set forth Christ in all of His glory and all of His mercy. The preacher has to make it very clear that repentance, the full work of repentance is the duty of every person and that failure to repent is a rejecting of God. If you won't repent, what you're saying is, I don't want that God. And this is part and parcel with what we would call biblical or apostolic preaching. Modern day New Covenant preaching does not, is not in the line of the, the philosophical pontificator. It is in the line of the prophets. It's, it's following that vein. Now, I am not a prophet. I don't hold the office of a prophet. But what I do is more akin to the work of a prophet than the work of a philosopher or a man who's just, uh, like I say, given a book report. 
I, I, the preacher doesn't come to the pulpit to walk away saying, you know, take it or leave it. I, I hope this is maybe useful. The preacher comes to say, no, God has said this. You need to understand that this is really serious. This, is, this is, has application. So that's why the confession then gives us these examples and other living examples of this type of preaching in the life of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 is the first reference, verses 16 to 18. This is Isaiah preaching to the people of his day. And it's, we say often, or, or fairly regularly, because we want to reconstruct some thinking, that the, the job of the prophets was not primarily foretelling the future. The job of the prophet was primarily to take the law of God and apply it to the people. That was his job. So this is, what the, this is an example of what he's doing. Isaiah chapter 1, he's preaching. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now notice what he does. This is not a preaching class, but look what he does. He points out their sins. Oppression against the fatherless and the widow. That's, that's what they're doing. So here's the need. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds. Cease to do evil. He tells them what they're doing wrong. Then he says, here's the correction. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Stop doing wrong and do right. And then he gives them this promise. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Notice that he is pointing out specific sins of his day. Nobody listened to Isaiah and thought, who's he talking to? What, what's he referencing? They knew, they knew full well exactly what they were doing. And he brings that out. Then in Isaiah 55, he does it again. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now notice the specifics. Let the wicked man forsake his way. The overall pattern of his life, his conduct in this world, forsake it. But that's not enough. Also his thoughts, intentions and goals that he has, the ways that he thinks. Isaiah is dealing with both the external sins and the internal sins. The wicked man, you must forsake all of that. You've got to turn away from external and internal sins. And then here's the prescription. Let him return to the Lord. 
Turn to the ways of the Lord, the thoughts of the Lord. Come back to the Lord. And then He gives them this promise. That He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. This is preaching. This is what it means to preach repentance. It's not just saying, repent! That's, that's, there's more than that. And I believe when John the Baptist preached and when Christ preached and the evangelists sum up their message with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I believe that was synecdoche for a broad message where they were pointing out specific sins. And we see that in John the Baptist and Christ specifically. But the, to summarize their message, it was turn from your sins. Walk in the ways of God for the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of Christ has come. So this is preaching repentance. You open up the sin, explain God's expectations, explain God's ways, urge the people to turn from that sin, and lay forth the promises of God in Christ to those who will repent. The point of all this, again, is that our God has provided a way. This way. As Paul would say, the foolishness of preaching. How silly it is to the men of the world. God has ordained this way through the ministry of the church that we are kept. Whenever the preacher says something and it kind of hurts, remember, God's keeping me. He's not letting me... If a, a, a dog's on a leash and he gets too far out and he, that chain gets yanked, he might not like getting yanked, but at least he didn't go outside of where he was supposed to go. This is the way God keeps His people. Now, I don't want to forget... Other areas where we might find ourselves, to use the word, preaching. It's not just the man behind the pulpit who does preaching. The confession is dealing with that, I believe, predominantly. But there are many areas when, in which a preacher cannot forget repentance. Moms and fathers, if you're dealing with your children in the home, this is how you deal with them. Open up the sin. Explain God's expectations explain God's ways, urge them to turn, and lay forth the promises of God in Christ for those who will repent. It's not just stop that. You've got to work through this because you are in your home, mothers and fathers, you are a preacher, a preacher of repentance. And this is a means God uses. In conversations with co-workers and friends, this is what you have to do. Open up the sin. Open up God's expectations. Explain God's ways. Urge them to turn and lay forth the promises of God in Christ for those who will repent. If you ever get the chance to preach in the open air, what do you do? You open up the sin. Explain the ways of God and the expectations of God. Urge men to turn and lay forth the promises of God in Christ to those who will repent. Now, not every situation is going to allow for the same depth and specificity and application but if we seek to fall into the line of those who have been used of God, we must adopt His means. We have to go this route, preaching repentance. Now in conclusion, it's been a few years ago now, I preached a sermon on corporate repentance and I listed some things that we can do to cultivate an atmosphere of repentance in the church. And I've sort of summarized these into six primary headings. First, when you come to church, when you come to sit under the Word, ask the Lord 
to help you examine your heart in the act. So before the preaching, while the preaching is happening, after the preaching, you're asking, Lord, help me to make an honest evaluation of my heart. How does this message apply to me? Help me to be honest. So ask the Lord to examine your heart. Then secondly, listen for yourself. When you're listening to a preacher preach, and he begins to talk about specific sins of the heart, the mind, the actions, you need to be carrying on sort of a mental interaction. Not a verbal conversation, but a mental interaction dealing with what he's saying and bringing it to yourself and not what is our typical tendency, other people. We typically listen to sermons and we say, man, I know I've got a list of five people. When this sermon's over, five people I'm sending this to because they need to hear it. No, you need to hear it. God has made the provision in the covenant of grace that you find yourself in this room listening to this sermon at this time. This is how this works. It's foolishness. It's the foolishness of preaching. But God has ordained this. So listen for yourself. We might, there, there might be a sermon. Maybe this morning you came in you said, I know exactly what it means to ask for the Spirit. I, I, I understand all this. Then, well, for some reason, in the providence of God, He's brought you here to hear it again. Amen. So listen for yourself. Thirdly, listen for the language of repentance. Expect the preacher to use words like turn, change, cease, stop, quit, how dare you, what were you thinking, cut it out, things like that. Listen for that. Whenever that comes out, what he's saying is, there's, there's where you are and you need to quit doing that. That's the language of repentance. Number four, listen for specifics. Listen for specifics, especially specific sins. Now, transparency, most of the time preachers think they're being more specific than they are. They think they're being a lot more clear than they are. And so if you can't nail down any specifics, then go afterwards and say, what are some specific ways that this might apply? What are some specific sins that this might address? Um, and that is, that is the opposite from being offensive. That's, that's, that's basically walking up and saying, hey, I was listening to your sermon. So that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But look for those. Listen, what are the specifics and how might this apply to me? Number five, receive the command to repent with gladness. Don't buck against it. Don't murmur against it. Don't ignore it. Don't sweep it away. Don't receive it with bitterness. When the preacher begins to open up a sin, and this is, I imagine, a tendency, if the preacher who is a man is opening up the sins of, that might be specifically applicable to a woman, don't sit and think, well, who does he think he is? He doesn't know my job. He doesn't know what I'm... Don't think that way. Think, the Lord has brought me here to hear this message. If that man lives with a woman, he might know more than I think he knows about these things. So, so have a good attitude. Again, think of the Lord is keeping me. It hurts, but He's keeping me. So receive it with gladness. And then lastly, acknowledge personal repentance. Changes in your lifestyle, in your belief, in your practices, in your worldview that are brought by the Spirit granting repentance. Make these things topics of conversation. Talk about it. This is how we know that, that all of us are, dealing, are being dealt with Talk about it, if not in a broader setting. At the very least, it's encouraging to a preacher, especially if he's had to say some hard things. If, from my experience, when you have to say things that you know are very hard, 
usually I don't want to eat lunch with you. I don't want to sit with you. I don't want to be around you. So in those times, if and and don't don't you know don't pet somebody's ego. If the spirit has dealt with you, then go up to them afterwards and say, "Hey, what you said, I needed to hear that." That's all you got to say. That lets the preacher know at least one thing that was said has been used by the Spirit. And if you've been here, what you want to, be, what you want to know when you're finished is the Spirit was pleased to use something. The last thing we want to do is sit down and thinking that was useless. So acknowledge that. If not broadly, then, then closely. Um, what this does is it makes repentance normal. It makes this idea that we're all sinners and we're all being progressively sanctified and we're all being conformed to the image of Christ, it makes that normal. We recognize it. Church is a very good place for everybody to come and to pretend that we're all glorified. And, and that's not the case. We know that's not the case, but we, we kind of act like it's the case sometimes. So, work through those things. Let's pray and then we'll stand and we'll sing one more song together.